I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, made possible in part by Marie Sharp's Hot Sauce, hand-harvested, sustainably farmed, whole fruit and vegetables, certified, pesticide-free, and used within hours of picking, and by listeners like you. You can support our series on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome back to The Open Mind, Dr. Jeffrey Matthews. He is chairman of the Department of Surgery at the University of Chicago. Welcome back, doctor. Nice to be with you again, Alexander. What has changed in your estimation since we last gathered here on The Open Mind, which was fairly early into the pandemic, in terms of just the overall consciousness about the impact of this on the medical system? Nothing's changed and a lot has changed. Obviously, we're in different phases of the pandemic now. A lot of the things that we were concerned about uh, early on was uh, uh, simply our own ignorance about how the virus was transmitted, our ability to uh, have sufficient personal protective equipment available for the caregivers, uh, how to uh, begin to uh, rationalize uh, care so that we could uh, uh, be able to handle the uh, very high numbers of patients who required hospitalization and intensive care, uh, and really the overwhelming of the system uh, during the initial months. Um, As the pandemic has extended and over the course of the year, uh, we have sufficiently been able to flatten the so-called curve so that the uh, hospital situation uh, is less stressed in terms of capacity, although by no means have we finished that. There are many hotspots around the country and, of course, around the globe uh, where uh, the spread of variants uh, and uh, relaxation of uh, public policy has perhaps happened uh, too soon uh, so that the uh, systems have again been overwhelmed. But by and large, issues regarding PPE, um, understanding of how the virus is spread and how to prevent it from common sense uh, public policy like masking and social distancing uh, and these sorts of things uh, have uh, have really helped. But I think we're in a totally new phase right now where we are racing against variants and racing uh, against uh, um, the rollout of the vaccine uh, and uh, struggling with our own continued uncertainties uh, uh, about how to handle the flood of misinformation uh, that's in the uh, uh, that, that's widely circulated. Uh, and at what point uh, do we make logical small steps to create something like uh, a normal life again for people? Jeff, how would you assess the United States at its moment of crisis and grave crisis relative to what's transpired in Brazil and now India? Because we see the footage on television and it's not that could be us. In many ways, that was us, too. Yes, I think it's difficult um, to uh, draw comparisons too closely from one region to another. Uh, When I look, as everybody does, at the headlines or I'm on the Internet and I'm seeing uh, an expert opinion or a public policy approach that's comparing what happened in Michigan versus what happens in Florida versus what happens in California and tries to draw direct connections between public policy and how the virus uh, spread or how the systems responded. Those are uh, 
often very flawed comparisons because there are so many factors that differ from place to place, whether it's availability of medical equipment, whether it is the density of the population, uh, whether it is the um, politicization uh, of public policy that happens in a given place. So it's really hard to compare what goes on in uh, within the United States from state to state and region to region, rural to urban, uh, let alone to try to compare what's happened in the United States to other portions of the world and drawing direct public policy conclusions about that. I, I think that there were many things that we did well as a country uh, over last year and into this year. Uh, we really did respond in, in many ways uh, with an all-hands-on-deck uh, approach uh, to clear our hospitals, to enact state-by-state rules that uh, helped uh, hospitals stem the tide and to catch up with the um, uh, uh, wave of demand for things like personal protective equipment, masks, and so forth. Uh, could we have done it better? Probably. And I, I think the unfortunate thing in this country, but really globally, is the politicization uh, of everything. Um, and somehow the public tolerance for uh, uncertainty and the public tolerance for the evolution of policy decisions as new information becomes uh, available. I think this, we, we talk about this all the time, the suspicion of uh, experts uh, and the relationship of uh, being informed by science and then creating public policy uh, that reflects the science, but recognizing that science and public policy are not the exact same thing. In terms of the long trajectory of the pandemic and its impact on medical practices in this country. What is the silver lining in your estimation? Um, you said that in many ways it's remained the status quo and in other ways it's dramatically different besides the difference in protocol, which is protective equipment and what we know now that there was a void when it came to the supply for emerging infectious diseases Separate from that issue, uh, from which we seem to have recovered and are better prepared, what has most dramatically changed in your hospital? Uh, well, many things have uh, changed. I think some of the most dramatic things, and I'll say something that is uh, changed for the better and something that has been highlighted, I think, potentially for the worse, or at least as a caution. What's highlighted for the better uh, is the rapid adoption of uh, telehealth options. Uh, everybody uh, I know is tired of Zoom calls uh, and every business or so many different businesses in our personal lives have revolved around uh, uh, teleconferencing and, and this medium. But the ability to conduct many aspects of routine care uh, with telehealth platforms and their rapid adoption and acceptance um, has been extraordinary. And I think that is clearly here to stay. Uh, the uh, need for a patient who uh, has an operation that I perform, who then goes home to have to come back repeatedly uh, at a distance or take days off from work, travel, you know, park, uh, come up to the office just for me to take a quick look at something that could be handled by a telehealth virtual visit. I mean, that is so uh, satisfying both to the patients and their families, as well as to the caregivers, 
uh, as a way of introducing efficiency. That's great. On the other hand, we have seen the rapid adoption of uh, this technology platform in uh, some senses increase the digital divide and the healthcare disparities that we see in the community. If COVID has done anything, it has uh, shown a very bright spotlight on the systemic uh, racism in healthcare delivery uh, and that our vulnerable communities uh, have been disproportionately impacted by the uh, pandemic, have a harder time accessing, and the lack of devices and broadband and connectivity uh, has impaired their ability to access telehealth, uh, just like it's uh, impaired uh, the ability uh, to uh, have good educational options uh, for the for the children. So there is this risk of the digital divide uh, exacerbating healthcare disparities that are already rampant within our uh, system. When we last spoke, we discussed the prospect for systemic reform to the system. Um, we, we discussed the disproportionate impact that was visible to any in, intelligent or intellectually honest person from the outset. Um, do you think that there are strides that have been made in addressing that latter point in reimagining or formulating a healthcare system that is not going to serve only one community, um, community that has resources, uh, but a healthcare system that is going to serve all? I think there has been more open discussion about the uh, the 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 situation uh, of disparities within healthcare and how multidimensional that is. It's not just one situation, um, but at the same time, I think we are still living in very politically divided times. So the ability to have a rational discussion of solutions uh, that doesn't degenerate into political posturing uh, or um, bureaucratic hurdles uh, is also as as high as it's ever been. Uh, and whether um, um, whatever political stripe one wears, it's really hard to dissociate the solutions um, from the bureaucracy uh, and the complexity of our healthcare system. I think we have seen some progress over the past few months in uh, re-engaging around access issues uh, through uh, opening up um, the exchanges again and uh, 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 trying to find ways to restore uh, some of the um, uh, infrastructure that would allow um, uh, vulnerable communities to access healthcare. Uh, I think we've seen um, a real effort in the, and I don't want to get political uh, here, but I will in the in the president's uh, um, infrastructure agenda uh, to impact uh, uh, aspects of society that will improve health, whether it is broadband initiatives uh, and education uh, initiatives. Uh, these will have uh, effects. They aren't directly addressing the complexity of our healthcare uh, system. We still don't even have uh, firm direction from insurance companies as to how long they will be covering telehealth options uh, for patients and whether uh, that will allow telehealth to uh, uh, be 
uh, supported across state lines, for example. Right now, everything is good, and the, and the companies have been very uh, supportive of telehealth uh, and have waived uh, many of the rules regarding um, uh, reimbursements across state lines. But how long that will go on for is highly uncertain right now. Well, those companies have continued to profit even with the adjustments that make the system more coherent and more accessible, right? Correct. There's... Um, um, there are so, and I'm not a, 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 a certainly not a, a policy or a healthcare economics uh, expert, but but it it I think anybody can understand uh, that a private insurance company that is um, um, supported by uh, member premiums uh, and that their expenses are on healthcare uh, does very well uh, when uh, the large aspects of healthcare uh, simply stop like screening examinations. Uh, it's not like there is a premium refund uh, that's gone back out. So the companies have done very well. At the same token, they have been very collaborative uh, in the vast majority of instances in addressing um, the, the public health crisis, in supporting the rapid adoption of telehealth and in reimbursing for it. But we don't have clear directions as to how long that's going to last for uh, and, uh, and how... Um, the the economic success of uh, healthcare corporations uh, will translate back into reinvestments into the vulnerable communities. It's a big unknown. What would you say would be the most strategic advice you could give to the Biden administration? And and I know that you have your surgeon suit on, but often those voices and practitioners on the ground level are most astute in observing where policies can provide corrective measure, where there are flaws, dysfunction, difficulties. And so in your estimation, what would be the next steps to take related to the pandemic or separate from the pandemic to advance the goal that you're describing, which is a system that that can work, that can be flexible, that can be sustained, that can take care of the most patients at, at any given time, at any given day. What advice would I give? Well, boy, um, I'm, I'm, I think that what I am pleased about uh, is the, um, the de-escalation of the politics of expertise uh, that we've seen in the last uh, few months. Uh, and, and I think really on both sides of the aisle, there's been a, a, a little bit of a sigh of relief that um, that um, th- there is a, a, a bit of a toning down of, of, of the um, polarization around these things and a, and a sense that uh, listening to uh, experts um, convening conversations uh, is probably going to uh, help us get more focused and more pragmatic. The more it can be taken out of politics and more taken uh, into the uh, realm of uh, of science and policymakers with, without um, um, the uh, arguing from extremes, um, I think we'll, we'll get to something that's uh, perhaps better. I, I think that the my advice would be to try to find those elements 
of healthcare reform that were in motion and that were um, strongly held by one political side or another in a pre-pandemic era and decide whether those really still are the highest priorities. So I think a lot of the issues around payment reform, um, uh, value-based care, and all of uh, these uh, sort of bureaucratic initiatives that, that come out of, uh, of uh, CMS and other uh, uh, areas in the government were, were focused on uh, pre-pandemic priorities. And I wonder whether some of those are the most important priorities now, whether, whether it should be more focused really on things that are going to address disparities and access uh, dominantly uh, rather than how to chip away at uh, what providers make or other sorts of uh, uh, issues there. I, I think the, the, the providers are, uh, are, like the whole population, have a bit of COVID fatigue, but they've been on the front lines um, in, in handling incredibly stressful, uh, difficult, and overwhelmed situations uh, to go back to the same old fights about uh, cuts to physician comp- uh, compensation or adding on uh, bureaucracy uh, to to payment reforms around uh, uh, value and quality may be a little bit misguided now um, and perhaps more of a focus on transformation. So I'm encouraged by the efforts to invest in broadband and, uh, and uh, digital health solutions. Uh, and I think that's where the emphasis uh, should be, probably where the greatest opportunity could be and where the least politics would be. When you do see the light at the end of this tunnel, it is a bit like waiting for Godot in the sense that we know the variants combined with at least half of this country that is vaccine resistant or hesitant means that the pandemic or some state of endemic pandemic, some state of pandemic is likely to live on um, because of those two factors, the variants and the vaccine hesitance. Uh, Is that your estimation if we're just being realistic about I think so. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I, you know, it's hard to, you know, uh, t- hard to make predictions, especially about the future, as they say. Um, it's hard to really know. Uh, my hope is that over the course of the summer, uh, that some of the heated rhetoric uh, around vaccine hesitancy uh, will begin to erode. Uh, and, and I think I'm starting to see uh, more thoughtful conversations coming uh, from more places within um, in the political world, as well as in some pockets of the media, that I think will start to uh, break down some of the vaccine hesitancy and so that that will become better. But we're fully prepared uh, to see COVID uh, turn into another chronic, perhaps seasonal uh, disease like influenza that is at times going to overwhelm our health system. Um, and it's going to be with us for a while. So that's not going to go, even though we have booster shots uh, every year or new rounds of vaccinations every year for influenza, we still have influenza seasons. And I think that there will be variants that emerge with coronavirus that will keep us on our toes. What we have um, been able to transition to 
in our hospital and in many other institutions is because we have adequate supplies of PPE and because we've learned uh, how to um, approach COVID as a, as a disease, how to treat it, how to manage it. Um, we, we haven't had to do the cohort units, the COVID specific ICUs, uh, COVID wards that are isolated. It's now more and more part of the daily business of running a hospital. And at any given time, we have patients with cancer in the hospital or patients who have had traumatic injury or patients who have diabetes and we'll have patients who have COVID. And that'll just be part of the census of, of any hospital. Right now, we're in our third wave in Chicago and um, we um, have about uh one-third of what we had at our maximum. But I can tell you in January and last summer, we were down to eight or 10 patients in the hospital with COVID, which was really nothing. But now we're up pushing 60 and, and, and more, and uh, it's a strain on the system. Final question, Doc. Yeah. What has been the most effective method to persuade a vaccine resistor or someone who's hesitating? Because we, we do all know them in our lives. I mean, I, it doesn't have to be someone who is reading the conspiracy theories. It can be someone who is just young and skeptical. And the J&J pause obviously did not reassure people. It might have been the safe and scientifically literate thing to do. But I think many of us in our lives know someone, at least one person, who has skepticism, if not outright resistance to the vaccine. So, um, and, and of course, there, there are those who are, who are capitalizing on that for nefarious purposes um, and political purposes, which you identified earlier. But in our lives, what has, and, and from your experience, if you've had it, what is the most effective way to negotiate with or, or attempt to negotiate with um, someone who is questioning whether he or she should get the vaccine? I, yeah, it's a great question. I, I, I personally, and I think many of my colleagues would agree that uh, the one-on-one -on -one conversation um, that um, does not um, reinforce entrenched opinions, but that addresses fears um, and uh, concerns uh, in a thoughtful, often um, uh, multiple conversations that reinforce uh, uh, discussions around the fears. Um, you know, that, those are the kinds of things that, that, that tend to nudge people in the right direction. Uh, I, I think just uh, confronting people with facts um, uh, can be overwhelming and can, and can paradoxically force people to retrench. I think the role modeling is important, and the more that we're seeing, um, whether it is um, uh, celebrities or, or political figures um, um, who have influence, uh, role modeling the, the right behavior there, I think that helps. And I'm, I, I'm guardedly optimistic uh, that we're emerging from the uh, really extreme um, um, uh, uh, you know, stance taking that people were, were doing and that there's sort of more thoughtful conversations happening. And so I'm hoping that through May uh, and June and July, uh, just sort of toning down the rhetoric uh, will allow more thoughtful one-on-one -on -one conversations to happen. I think that's where it's got to happen. 
Dr. Jeffrey Matthews, Chairman of the Department of Surgery at the University of Chicago. Thank you so much for joining me again and for your insight today. Nice to talk to you again, Alexander.